And you have saved us from ourselves. And you have saved us from hell. And we pray, O oh Lord, that by the truth of your word, you would not allow us to sit on our laurels as your followers, as your disciples. You have called us out of darkness to light, prepared good works that we should walk in them. So keep us from distracting ourselves with shows or social media, that we may live transformed lives that compel others around us to see the glory of Christ. Sanctify marriages in our church that husbands would lay down their lives in love for their wives and wives would come under the glad shepherding of their husbands. May marriages be put on display of Christ's love for his church. Relieve us from trusting in money and affluence that we might reveal to a watching world where our treasure is, that we don't care about fancy food or owning a house or getting a raise or having more education or another toy as much as we desire for your name to go to the nations that we might store up treasures in heaven. Even more, may we live out transformed lives in countercultural but appealing communities. May our hearts be for your church, for your redeemed. May we love one another, opening up our homes and welcoming one another and serving one another confessing sins and praying, forgiving, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Stir in us a desire to even sing that we may address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We know all this is personally costly. It will cost us time and our well-being, our money. But for the sake of your people and for the sake of the gospel, we know that we will receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come. We pray not only for our church, but also for our Chinese congregation and for the other CCIC churches in the Bay Area who are making decisions on how to reopen, how to meet together, how to adapt to changes the pandemic has wrought. And we pray that they would not seek to innovate or evolve past your word. Help them to be faithful to your word and how you have already regulated how your people ought to worship when they gather. And we pray that these congregations would fear you and therefore have nothing else, else to fear. We bring before you the nation of India. During this time of skyrocketing COVID cases, we ask that you would give their political leaders wisdom to make the right decisions regarding how to use resources, how to reduce pain and suffering in the, in the country, provide the necessary medical supplies, grant that there would be many who would be made well, rescue and heal, and forbid that they would be like the nine lepers who took their healing from Jesus and never turned to thank him or love him. Let their healing be full and eternal to the glory of the healing God and grant that it would go well with their physical health and even more so with their souls. And now, Lord, as you address us in your word this morning, we ask that in your grace you would do the impossible and cause it, 
Cause your word to pierce our soul and spirit, our joints and marrow. In reading and hearing and preaching, may your word discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. We are looking at specifically verses 4 through 6 this morning in Revelation 20. Uh, but this morning, I want us to be able to read through 1 through 6 so that we could have a little bit of context as we look back into Revelation 20. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 20. This is God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Authentic Christianity is a life of blessedness. This is the contention that Jesus had in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he says that the blessed life that we can have begins when we recognize that we are poor in spirit. In other words, happiness does not come from education Happiness does not come from money. Happiness does not come from making it or success. It doesn't come from making your mark somewhere in the world. It is when you look at your own heart in honesty, recognizing that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have no standing before God, and you mourn over your sins. To weep over being separated from God. To weep over your hopeless condition. To weep over the prospect of hell and judgment. It is only when you mourn over who you are and you do not deny it. You do not chalk it up under some mental strain 
or some mental weakness. It is only when you come before God as a spiritual beggar, before God repenting of your sins and placing your trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose on your behalf that you can finally hashtag blessed. And when you do that, everything changes. Everything changes. You are no longer hungry and thirsty, but you are satisfied with an overflowing mercy and a pure heart. And most importantly, you are placed into a relationship with Jesus, united to him by faith. But this new reality has absolutely disruptive consequences. Frankly speaking, Christianity does not make your life easier. It makes your life harder. Because the blessedness and happiness that you know in Christianity is contradictory to the world. To everything around you. Your new life in Christ is now devoted to righteousness. And that will be reviled against or spoken against. If you cherish chastity, your life will be, on, be attacked by people who love free sex. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly before your God, you will expose evil of pride. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of the people around you. And therefore, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Christians at some point will experience some degree of hostility and rejection and slander and false accusations and insults. And I'm not saying this simply to play the victim card here. That's not what it's all about. Because genuine Christian, Christians know that when they are reviled, they what? They do not revile in return. Genuine Christians would never have an insurrection and take up arms. Genuine Christians love their enemies. You know what they would do? They see them hungry and they would bake cookies for them. They see them thirsty, they'll door dash some soda to them. They will overcome evil with good. Yet Christians are aware that if they are faithful in all their affairs and in all their relationships, if they stand unswervingly for Jesus Christ, there are only two responses from the people around them. Either they will be converted, there will either be conversion, or there will be persecution. There are two responses from people who hang out with faithful Christians. Conversion or persecution. Either people around them will embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or people around them will malign them and say, what you're saying is hate speech. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote about Christians. Though they, ever, though they be ever so meek, merciful, pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from suffering. They must hang their harp on the willows and take up the cross. The way to heaven is a way of thorns and blood. Set it down as a maxim. 
if you will follow Christ, you must see the swords and staves. And the question is, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might be wondering, is Christianity worth it? After all, Jesus said on account of him, families would be divided. Jesus said that your life would be upended. And you might be asking yourself, is it worth it to upend my life and my livelihood for the sake of Jesus? I mean, Jesus is not going to be a nice ornament on your life. He refuses to be that. He's not going to make you any richer. He's not going to make you hit more home runs or have you be more successful to win in life. No, he's calling you, he's calling all of us to lose our life and count everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus Christ. So you might be asking yourself, is Christianity worth it? Believe it or not, that's what Christians ask themselves too. This is actually why the book of Revelation is written. It is written to these seven churches of Asia Minor who are under intense scrutiny and under intense persecution by the Roman authorities and by the Roman society. They were rejected for not following the societal ethos of the day. They were seen as detrimental to society. They didn't give a pinch of incense to Caesar. They didn't bow down to the gods of the multiple guilds in the workplace. And so they were canceled out of that culture. Some suffered martyrdom. Some were thrown in prison. And the temptation for those seven churches of Asia Minor was to drift. To just go with the flow. To compromise. And the Apostle John receives this revelation to embolden the church to faithful obedience. That's what chapter 20 is all about. It is to embolden you, church, to faithful obedience as a witness to Christ. That despite incredible loss, loser will not be the final word. Rather, what we see in verses 4 through 6 are two promises. Two promises for the Christian. First, those in Christ will rise with Christ. And second, those in Christ will reign with Christ. Now, you'll recall from last week that chapter 20 is one of the most disputed sections of a most disputed book. And we talked last week about the three positions of the millennium. We talked about uh, millennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism. And I won't go over those positions again. I'll let you go ahead and just download the, the recording from last week. But I won't say too much more except to, let, to be honest with you and let you know that whether you realize it or not, you've been getting a pre-millennial perspective on the book of Revelation for the past year and a half. In other words, the millennium is not taking place right now, but rather the millennium will come after Christ returns. That is what we have to look forward to. When Christ returns, he will visibly rule and reign upon the earth in glory. And when he comes, Satan will be bound. But that is not all that will happen during the millennium. 
And what we see is that those in Christ will rise with Christ. Look at verse 4 with me. Those in Christ will rise with Christ. Look at verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now who are we talking about here in this scene? Who are the ones that are seated on the throne? Now, most agree that it is a picture of all the saints, all Christians. Some would say, and I tend to agree, that the clearest and closest reference of who these ones that are seated on the throne are comes from chapter 19. It is the armies that come with Christ on that day of battle, dressed in fine linen. So most students of the Bible agree that it is all believers during the time of the millennium with a particular view towards the martyrs, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, those who went to the chopping block because they would not receive the mark on their foreheads or hands. So broadly speaking, it is referring to all Christians who don't give in. It is referring to those overcomers who did not compromise. It is referring to those who lost it all for the sake of Christ, who laid down their heads and laid down their necks for the sake of Christ. And I hope that that describes many of you, overcomers. Now, what happens to them? It says at the end of verse 4 that they come to life. Namely, that they experience a resurrection. That's what it says in verse 5. They experience a resurrection, this first resurrection. Now, believe it or not, this is actually one of the most controversial or major debates when it comes to the millennium. I know, we're back into talking about this uh, male, pre-male stuff. But let me just simply say, because it's going to come up is that the Amel position says that when you look at, when it says come alive and it says resurrection, the Amel position says that's not what it really means. They don't take it at face value because for the Amel position, we are currently in the millennium and the resurrection hasn't happened yet. So instead, Amels will say that the phrase came to life refers to some kind of heavenly exaltation of the saints after death. So it's, it's all spiritual. Meaning, when you die, your bodies are in the ground, but you are present with the Lord. And in that moment, that is what it's referring to, that coming to life, that resurrection. So right now, my, my grandfather, uh, he who, who died in Christ, right now, he would have experienced already the first resurrection. He's a disembodied spirit sitting on these thrones in heaven, reigning with Christ right now. Now, I think that's a possible interpretation. I just don't think it's a probable interpretation. Uh, when we look at this, I think it requires special pleading to make these plain words mean something else. Uh, I think when it says come to life, it 
typically, almost always in the Bible, well, for the majority of the times, means a physical coming to life. And the word resurrection itself, throughout the Bible, always, everywhere, in Scripture, always refers to a physical resurrection, not simply a spiritual resurrection. So, I think to use that word resurrection as something other than a physical resurrection is a radical linguistic innovation. So what we have here is not what's happening right now, but is the future hope, this future resurrection. Now this is referred to in verse 5 as the first resurrection, meaning that there somehow is a second resurrection. Now the scriptures suggest that there are two resurrections, one unto everlasting life, and one unto everlasting death. One for the just and one for the unjust. Daniel 12.2 says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Acts 24.15 says, There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. John 5.28, Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so it is spoken of not as one general resurrection, but two, one for saints and one for sinners. And what separates these two resurrections is the era of the millennium. See what verse 5 says. It says that the rest of the dead, and almost every interpreter understands this to be the unbelieving dead. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So first resurrection for the believers enters into the millennium. And when the millennium ends, there's a second resurrection for the unbelievers, and at that point, they will stand before the great white throne of judgment before God. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is something that is actually very important for you to hear. And it's this, it's that everyone lives forever. And there's a possibility for eternal joy or eternal misery. You know, the Bible compares all of our lives to a vapor, to coffee, steam, that's just steams off the cup of coffee and just disappears. And the Bible describes the time after death as ages upon ages. And that means that it matters infinitely what happens to you after you die. You will not be blinked out of existence. You'll be resurrected with a body fit for an eternity in glory or resurrected with a body fit for an eternity in damnation. And I plead with you this morning to consider your life, to spend just a few minutes today, some undistracted moments today, thinking and considering your presence standing before God before there are no more days left and you must stand before the throne of judgment. Turn to Christ and be blessed. Turn to Christ and be happy, not with God being your 
bellhop or your butler, not with God ensuring that you have a family and your stocks grow or whatever it might be, but be blessed with the joy of union with Christ and be blessed as the passage says right here in Revelation that you will not have to face the second death, the wrath of God for an eternity. Brothers and sisters, you may be here this morning in a variety of circumstances. I know some of you are here this morning suffering and under difficult circumstances. And you may be, as Romans 8 says, under the groaning that comes from the futility of this fallen age, whether it comes from human persecution or satanic attack or natural disaster. There's much on the road to heaven that threatens our faith in God's sovereign goodness. But the promise here for you is that you will rise. You will rise. That is our great hope. Not some sort of spiritual resurrection, but the redemption of our bodies. We, as Romans 8 says, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You will receive new bodies, redeemed and glorified bodies to enjoy the millennium and the coming world. God created us to be physical beings, physical beings that we may worship God in a way that disembodied spirits cannot worship God. One more way of glorifying him. You're going to be new and you're going to see Christ with glorious new eyes. God's final purpose for you is not to be a soul flittering around in heaven in some ghost-like mansion. That sounds unattractive. His purpose is for you to be in a millennial kingdom on earth in which goodness and justice will reign. Which brings us to our second promise this morning. That those in Christ will not only rise with Christ, but that those in Christ will reign with Christ. This is the repeated phrase that you see. You see it in, at the end of verse 4. They will reign with him for a thousand years. You see that in verse 6. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And the picture here is of believers, martyrs, sitting on the throne. Sitting on thrones, it says in verse 4, given the authority to judge. Now, this isn't some spiritual judgment in heaven, but an earthly authority. Because earlier, the promise in Revelation 5.10 was what? You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, how are we to be given thrones? I mean... Jesus is seated on the throne, so it doesn't seem like there's much room for us, right? Listen to what Revelation 3, 21 says. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me. This is Jesus speaking. Grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, Christians, Jesus shares his throne with you. Isn't that amazing? In the millennium, he not only gives us new redeemed bodies, but he elevates you and me. We who are wholly undeserving 
and given a status we could not have even imagined. I, I, I think about David giving Mephibosheth a seat at the table, this crippled son of his enemy. I, I think about my time when I was newly married and I, I went to a restaurant in Los Angeles, kind of just waiting in line to hear my name called in. There's this restaurant there, and you kind of, there's this special, like, room that you could sit in and eat these finger foods before your name is called. And you're just kind of waiting there. And I remember walking in, and I was by myself and waiting for my friends to kind of show up. And I saw the president of my seminary, John MacArthur, sitting there with his staff. And, you know... He doesn't know me from Adam. You know, he was just like, whatever, who's this guy? But I looked at him, and he looked at me. So I went up to him, and I said, hi. And I introduced myself. And uh, I'll never forget what he said. He said, hey, take a seat. I was like, what? I'm going to sit with you? And he started asking me questions. And never did I imagine that I would be sitting in that seat next to him, talking to him about my wedding and about why my wife's asleep in the car. And will there not be an everlasting joy when Christ brings you and I to the throne? When he says, hey, take a seat. The overwhelming sense of gratitude, the ceaseless desire to praise as the exalted Christ exalts you. Beloved, this is amazing that Christ who rightfully possesses the heavens and the earth brings you to himself upon the throne, lifts you and seats you with him, holding nothing back from you. Romans eight sixteen. we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And what will we be doing as Christians during that time on the throne? We'll be judging the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Revelation 2, 26, earlier John says this, those who overcome, who persevere to the end, who keep my works until the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations. That's what's going to be happening. You're going to be sitting on the throne judging the nations. And you're saying, uh, who's on, who are you judging? Because no one's around. I thought there was this battle of Armageddon. No one's left. But it's just resurrected believers. Well, I think that earlier in chapter 19, when these armies had attacked in this battle against Christ upon his return, that they had been obliterated. But that those who were not part of the army and lived through that slaughter, they will experience a millennium with Christ and without the deceptive wiles of the devil. But the picture here is of an earthly kingdom. A world where righteousness and goodness dominate. A world where there's absolutely no injustice. A world where everyone is treated fairly. A world where no courts ever render a false verdict. Life and society and commerce and education is directed towards what is right. Moral standards will be upheld once more. There will be honesty in social media. Can you imagine that? The Old Testament prophets gave us a snapshot of what this kingdom will be when, when nations will beat their what? Will beat their swords into plowshares because there will be restraint as Christ rules as a rod of iron. A world unlike ours today. 
And that day is coming, and not just spiritually, but earthly and Christian, you are part of it. You will be judging with perfect justice and competence. You will perfectly carry out the will of Christ in that day in your resurrected bodies. I mean, can you imagine no more meetings? You don't need to meet and decide on what you need to do. This is awesome. You don't need to come together and find what's the best thing. You will know what Christ wants you to do. No more meetings. I can't wait for that day. You will be a priest, it says in verse 6. You will draw near to God. But hear this, Romans eight seventeen says, that though you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it says, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our glory with him. Our inheritance is conditional upon our suffering with him. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow after me. Church, it is true. No cross, no crown. No suffering, no inheritance. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But here's the point of Revelation 20. It's to tell you, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. You might be asking yourself, if it, you might be asking yourself if it, it if it is, to continue. Is is it is worth it to still keep continuing resisting that temptation? Is it still worth it to meet with this ragtag bunch of church people? Is it worth it to expend my time, my energy, my psychological well-being? For the sake of sharing the gospel or to counsel others or to build up the body or to pray or to call the wandering back or to welcome the stranger. Dear brothers and sisters, take this vision to heart. One by one, one friends and family, they might start unfriending you or you might, see, you might start seeing photos on Facebook and you're just not in those anymore because... There's tensions in your family, tensions in the workplace with your boss. Because they think you're out of touch with society, you might suffer verbal abuse. You will be judged, but Jesus promises, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He promises the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And Revelation 20 basically says, that's not the last word that you get. When people judge you, that's not the last word that you get. Your reward for suffering and enduring and being faithful witness is glory. It is exaltation to thrones. It is vindication. It is the right to sit on Christ's court and help adjudicate God's laws during this final period of earthly history. Instead of being subjected to false judgment, you will give out right and good and perfect judgment. Nothing you have lost in this lifetime will not be repaid a hundredfold in the age to come. God promises you will see all satisfying beauty and greatness, that you will be raised in glory to savor Christ and his worth. He promises that all the present misery and futility and corruption and groaning, that will all be freed. So don't throw in the towel. Don't yield to sinful pleasures of the moment. Don't devote your best energies to laying up treasures on earth 
Don't dream your most exciting dreams about accomplishments and relationships that perish. Don't fret over what this life fails to give you. Instead, revel that the owner and ruler of the universe loves us and has destined us for glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his kingdom. Church, when you know the truth about the millennium, that truth will set you free. And that truth will set you free from short-sightedness, shallow, stupid, selfish sinfulness. And free us to love others at great cost to ourselves for his glory. And the promise comes in First Peter that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. This hope is not merely in a spiritual hope, but an earthly one as well. And we praise you for that. We praise you that you did not leave us abandoned without an understanding of what is to come. And we pray this morning for those who are here and who do not yet know you, who are on the fence about you, and know what it will mean for their lives should they desire to be blessed. And we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would turn and talk with a friend. That they would turn and talk with somebody here this morning. And discover the joy of knowing Christ. And having him be all in all. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's at this point in our service that we're going to be observing the Lord's table in communion. And we do this as a church family the first Sunday of every month. And the Lord's Supper is many things. It is a time of remembrance. It is also a time of uh, communion with one another. It's also a time of reflection. But communion is also a picture of hope for us. Now listen to what Paul says concerning this ordinance. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. There is a proclamation that is happening here when we partake of communion together. You're proclaiming something about what the Lord has done in your life. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. And you are proclaiming 
Jesus is coming again, and I will wait for him. There is an inherent element of hope. Whenever you come to the table, you're talking about bread and taking the cup and bearing witness about the faithful witness and that Jesus is coming with the clouds to establish his kingdom and that he will establish the great supper of the Lamb. And what we are experiencing right now is mere appetizer for that wedding supper of the Lamb. So this morning, yes, uh, be thoughtful about partaking of communion as the Apostle Paul warns us to do, but also come with hope because glory is coming. Christ is coming and there will be a feast with Christ and an end to suffering and sin and injustice. And let your heart respond, I want to live as much as I can for that reality later. It is our tradition here at Redeemer that if you have not yet uh, participated in believer's baptism, that you refrain from partaking of the elements. However, if you are a Christian and you are a member here or at another gospel preaching church, we do invite you to take communion with us this morning. So in the next few moments, we'll have a time of silence and prayer. Uh, If you haven't picked up uh, one of the cups, they're still available at those tables. You should do that now. And we'll give a little bit of time for us to go before the Lord and confess any unbelief and draw near to, one, to God once again with hope. And then I will close us in prayer and then we'll take the elements together. Go ahead and bow your head in a prayer of reflection. Father in heaven, we give thanks that while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ, that you have received us into fellowship and communion with you. And we ask that as we partake of the bread and cup, we will grow more and more in true faith, continually exercising all manner of good works. Unite our hearts together as a church body that we may be a place of hope and truth until Christ's return. Amen. Luke 22, 19 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's all stand together and unwrap this this package. And let's take it together with hearts of thankfulness. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks. You have given us this grace of communion with your son, Jesus Christ. 
who having died on our behalf now gives us food and nourishment unto eternal life. And so we ask by the sacred use of these elements, as we commemorate together the dying love of Christ, grant us grace that we may never be unmindful of these things. Engrave them on our hearts that we may be strengthened for every good work as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed, and this concludes our Sunday service. Thank you for coming.